The word before us today is Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Hear the word of the Lord. I wonder, friend, if you've ever been in a situation where you finally felt like your life was going really well. Like really, really well. You look at your family, your job, your, your relationships, your kids, your finances, and, and wherever you look, your eyes light up with gladness, gratitude, joy, because you think, you know what? Finally, everything that I've been praying for, everything I've been waiting for, all that I've been asking you to do, God, I finally see it. It's all coming to pass. Life is, as it were, it's on the up and up. You, you can just feel it. You can, you can feel the positive inside of you. This is going well. It's just going to get better. And it feels really good to talk about hardship with the past tense. You're glad you finally have a testimony to share. You know, because who wants to hear about how hard things are? What you want is like, it was hard, but now. 
You didn't know if God would come through. You wondered, you, you doubted, you questioned, but praise the Lord, he came through. He answered his promises. You wondered, but he was faithful. You doubted, but he came through. And then, without warning, the bottom falls out. The biggest trial, the biggest test, the biggest difficulty of them all suddenly lands on your doorstep out of nowhere, and you thought you were out of all this crazy storm stuff. You hear the rain just stopped? I didn't plan that. <laughs> but you thought it was done. You thought it was gone. You thought you had learned whatever lesson God thought was important to teach you. Now, prosperity and blessing, here we come. But now, as this new one shows up on your doorstep, this new difficulty, the greatest of it all, you suddenly think, Lord, it feels like you just raised me up so you could knock me right back down. That's what it feels like. And if you can relate to that feeling, friend, then you can seriously relate to Abraham in this chapter. Seriously. Because when we last left him in Genesis, everything was on the up and up. It really was. The, the offspring God promised, check out my son Isaac. Isn't he a good-looking guy? The, the land that the Lord said he would give me, look at, look at my well at Beersheba. I mean, I know it's only one young man and, and one little plot of land in the region of Gerar, but, but it's a start. It's the beginning of something new. It, things are finally working out for me, a step in the right direction. God's plan for my life is finally coming together after years of waiting. In his case, try decades. And at that moment, enter Genesis 22 Verse 1, look there. After these things, God tested Abraham. After these things, what's that? After all the up and up is starting to happen, it's getting going, I can feel it, blessings coming my way, things are getting good. After those things, God tested Abraham. And the question on my mind is why in the world would God do that? Why would he do that? When everything was finally on the up and up, why would God bring another trial, another difficulty Abraham's way? I'll tell you what, friends. I know one reason he did not test Abraham. It was not because Almighty God needed to figure out something that he didn't know inside of Abraham. When God tests people, it's not the product of his ignorance. It's the product of his love. God didn't test Abraham because he needed to understand something about Abraham. He tested Abraham because he wanted to strengthen something in Abraham. James 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What's steadfastness, church? It's, it's strong faith, right? It's, it's sturdy faith. It's not a, Lord, I love you because of all the goodies you give but rather I trust you because of who you are. Okay? That's steadfastness. And, and 1 Peter 1.6 says that that kind of steadfastness, that kind of sturdy faith is more precious than gold. Why? Because it's through that kind of faith that kind of unwavering trust when, in God when everything else is stripped away, that we come to experience and glorify and delight in God as the God who provides. That's why it's more precious than gold. It's not your material riches or your physical health, friend, that will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the strength of your faith. 
And so because God loved Abraham, God remained committed to doing something in Abraham that was infinitely more important than making Abraham comfortable. We've seen that again and again in Genesis. God God is not up to a let's bring in more trucks of comfort project. He is up to let me strengthen your faith so that you can glorify and love and delight in me for who I am project. By the way, he's up, up to that in you too. And the way God strengthened Abraham's faith church is arguably it's no different in the way God strengthens our own, and the way God wants to strengthen yours. How does he do that? He brings something called a test. He brings a test. He brings a situation, think of it this way, that forces us to decide who we really love and who we really trust. That's the essence of the test. It's a two-question test, and it's not multiple choice. It's essay. (laughs) Who do you really love? Who do you really trust? And because our tests are often so no different than Abraham's, we, we do well to pay attention to this test, the nature of the test, to how Abraham responded to the test, and then especially what does God reveal about himself on the heels of the test in his response to Abraham. We need that. We need that because, here's why this matters, if we learn what God wants us to learn from Abraham's test, this isn't a surprise, I hope, we will be ready to respond to the test that God brings our way. Because here's, the, here's what I can assure you, okay? God loves you enough to test your faith. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't test you. But because he loves you and because he wants to work in you something that is more precious than gold, he's going to test you. So, let's look at the test and see what we can learn from it so that we can respond as God wants us to respond. In Abraham's case, no less than our own, the Lord begins the test by calling him to a new level of sacrificial obedience. To costly obedience that requires him to exercise a muscle called faith. Point number one, God requires sacrificial obedience. I'm looking especially at verses one and two here. So so think about this. Look at verse two with me. Chapter 22, the Lord doesn't take long to get to the point. There's not much of a preamble to this test. Verse two, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I hope you notice the way the Lord lingers in identifying Isaac. Why why does he do that? He does that so that Abraham knows, even in the midst of his shock, that God understands the cost of his request. God is not up in heaven saying, you're worried about Isaac? Like, try controlling the whole universe, dude. He gets it. He gets it. And he shows us that he fully understands the cost of his request no less than he did back in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3 right? Where he called Abraham to leave his country, his kindred, his father's house. So Abraham, this time, I don't just want your son. I want your only son. And I don't just want your only son. I want the son whom you love. I I want the son that made you and Sarah laugh when he was born. I want And that word son, if you were reading carefully, it shows up 10 times in this passage. Why? Because it reminds us of the the intimacy of relationship, the depth of affection and joy that that the aging man found in Isaac. So suffice it to say, God could not have made a more radical demand from Abraham. He couldn't have asked for more. And what God asked him to do, in the words of Derek Kidner, listen to this, defied common sense, 
human affection, and lifelong ambition. I mean, remember, Isaac was what? He was the son God promised him, right? For for years, Isaac was the son that God gave him. Isaac was the son through whom God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you crazy descendants like the stars in the sky. And through that offspring, through Isaac, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so what, what God was asking Abraham to do here seemed more than just out of character for the Lord, okay? Here's what it seemed like. It felt like God was undoing everything good in Abraham's life, unraveling it, undoing it, toying with him. You, you waited 25 years to give me this child, and now that he's finally here, you want me to kill him? Why would God demand that kind of sacrifice from Abraham? Why would God require of the man what was without question the most precious thing God had ever given him? Well, I think it's because the Lord's request forced Abraham to make two decisions. No less than our own test, okay? First, Will he love the giver more than the gift? Will he love the giver, the God who gave him Isaac, more than the gift, than Isaac? So think about this. If God had asked for a thousand sheep, or even 10,000 sheep, it would have cost Abraham something, but I think he would have offered them gladly. Why? Because he was a ridiculously wealthy man. He could have given him all kinds of sheep, but God didn't ask for a sheep. Why not? Because he knew Abraham. He knew him like he knows us, right? He knows our temptation to elevate the gift above the giver. To take God's blessings and say, that blessing, you are my God. I must have you. Oh, wait. Except that's not the giver. That's the gift. He knows our temptation to love God's blessings more than God himself. And so God put him in a situation where he was forced to decide which love would remain supreme, right? His love for God or his love for Isaac? Mind you, his love for Isaac was not wrong, right? Parents, don't be thinking if you love your children, something's messed up, okay? It is not. God commands us to love them, but the supremacy matters. Where's your greatest affection go? That was the first decision. Will you love the giver more than the gift? Here's the second one. Will he trust God's wisdom or his own? I mean, studying this passage this week, I, I think that had to be the biggest battle of all, right? Whose wisdom is going to reign supreme? Why do I say that? Because everything God had said, everything God had done, all the, all the difficulties, all the acts of divine deliverance, the, the entire trajectory of his whole life pointed onward and upward to good through Isaac. It wasn't just like, Abraham had a little side plan that involved his son. Isaac was at the center of God's revealed plan. You want me to do what? That makes no sense. The challenge wasn't just that God's command wrecked his heart. The challenge was that God's command made no sense to his mind. No sense. It must have seemed like God was contradicting himself, right? Backspacing himself, as if the divine wisdom that that he thought he could trust just, just suddenly dissolved in his hands into utter insanity and folly. Must have felt like that. Alan Ross says, although the commandment was to sacrifice Isaac as an offering to the Lord, the real point of the act was Abraham's sacrifice of himself. That is his will. Think about that. His wisdom. 
with regard to his son Isaac. Two decisions, pal. Two decisions. Whom will you love the most? Whose wisdom will you trust the most? Friends, when Jesus bids you to come to him, he bids you to die. To die to your affections, to die to your desires, to die to your wisdom, to die to what makes sense to you. Not not in the sense that we no longer love or desire or will or think, okay? We're, We're not like God lemmings. But in the sense that we take all those things, our loves, our desires, our wisdom, our thoughts, what seems right, what makes sense, even our sense and understanding of what we think God himself is doing, and we bring all of that and we surrender to the Lord and say, Father, it's all yours. That's a death. Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and while we're at it, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Listen, God required sacrificial obedience from Abraham. Friend, Jesus requires the same thing from you. Complete, total, absolute surrender and radical sacrificial obedience. He will not allow you to negotiate with him. He will not allow you to share his position on your heart with other things. He is God. He wants all of you, including your understanding of his wisdom. I guarantee you this, if you choose to follow Jesus, at some point he will require something from you or do something in your life that makes absolutely no sense to you. No sense. Why? Because he wants you to love him more than you love anyone or anything else. And he wants you to trust him more than you trust anyone or anything else. He wants your heart. That's the test. Abraham, listen, do you obey me because I give you things you like? And because I do things that make sense to your pea-sized brain? Or do you obey me because I'm a faithful God and I've promised to do good to you, pal? Which one is it, buddy? Because when you put coins in, I feed out your favorite chips. Or because I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come, the Lord God Almighty. What's it going to be? And that question at the end of verse 2 is the same question we face today. To, To what extent are you and I willing to obey the Lord? That's the question, right? How far are we willing to go? Will we obey him to the point of abandoning every other object of our affection? Will we obey him to the point of abandoning every other source of wisdom? Will we obey him when everything he seems to be doing in the present feels like a massive contradiction of everything he said in his word and everything he's done in the past? Will you still obey him? Because if any part of us hesitates, then that is the part of us, the degree to which we have still not said, you alone are Lord. You hesitate, something else is Lord. God required sacrificial obedience, point one, not because he's a megalomaniac, but because it forces us to honestly reckon with the object of our trust. Okay? He requires sacrificial obedience. Point two, faith sustains sacrificial obedience. Okay, God requires sacrificial obedience. That's daunting. Were it not for the fact that faith sustains sacrificial obedience. So, so given the magnitude of the sacrificial obedience God required, Abraham's response in verse 3 is absolutely remarkable. Look, at, look there. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. 
And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. You know what shocks me the most about that? It's everything you don't read. Right? Abraham didn't demand details. I don't like that. (laughs) He didn't question God's wisdom. He didn't try to recommend alternatives, okay? He immediately obeyed. Now, lest you think that the only reason he was able to do that is because God has some sort of stoic, unfeeling, whatever happens will happen, I don't care, let God be God, I am a Jesus robot, module that he gave Abraham in that moment, you are sorely mistaken. (laughs) Okay? That's not why Abraham obeyed. He didn't obey because he was a super saint. You know why he obeyed? Because he was a man of faith. And one of the reasons the narrator keeps keeps slowing down the pace of the story, notice this, he arose and then he saddled his donkey. And then he took his two young men and then he got Isaac and then he he cut the wood. Why why is he going so slow? It's to help us slow down and feel the excruciating pain and cost of even the smallest acts of obedience. Have you been there, friend? We're just obeying God in the smallest way feels so crazy painful. It's part of the sacrificial obedience, not the least of which was three days of travel where no one else shared the agony of his soul. Think about that. Morning, Dad. How are you? I'm here, son. I mean, remember, Abraham doesn't know what we know, right? As the reader, we're told from the get-go, lest we miss the whole point because God knows we're, we're dumb like that, after these things, God tested Abraham. But Abraham doesn't know that. He doesn't know he's being tested. He doesn't know what God's going to do next. All he knows is that God gave him a command and he resolved to obey. Which begs the obvious question, what empowered him to keep going? Think about that. Well, I'll I'll tell you first what didn't sustain his obedience, okay? It was not an internal sense of peace. All right? I'm going to get in your business here a little bit. It wasn't that doing what God said felt good. We we easily fall into that kind of twisted thinking, right? We decide that whatever we have peace about, God help us. Whatever feels good to us, whatever reinforces our internal sense of emotional stability must be good and therefore must be God. That is not what it means to obey the Lord. It's not what it means, okay? Think of it this way. God is not a donkey that we get to hitch to the wagon of self-care. He is a king who issues words of infallible instruction and expects us to obey. He's not going to let himself, don't you dare try to hitch him to your self-care wagon. He is a king who issues instructions and expects us to say, yes, Lord, I will obey you. Not because it all makes sense. Not because we understand the details of how everything will work out. Not because we know how God will deliver us, but simply because we trust him. That's the point. It was Abraham's faith, his his unshakable trust in the promises of God that sustained sacrificial obedience. Look at verse 5. Don't miss this. They get to the mountain, and Abraham says something remarkable to his two young men. Look at this. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and what? And come again to you. That is a plural come he say that? How could he say that? How, how could he say that, that after they were done worshiping, 
both of them would come back. I'll tell you how. It was the voice of faith speaking. It was faith speaking, okay? That's what sustained his sacrificial obedience. Listen, Abraham believed that the God who had just told him to kill his son was the same God who had promised to give him innumerable descendants through his son. You know what Abraham said? God, even when your two commands and your words don't make sense to me, I don't get the intersection. I trust you and I believe all of it. I don't pit you against yourself and say, I have issued a verdict on you, almighty God, and you're a living contradiction. Don't trust you. God said it. He trusted him. And notice, friends, those two words from God were not a contradiction. Okay? What do I mean by that? If God had said, I will give you innumerable offspring through Isaac. I will not give you innumerable offspring through Isaac. That would have been a contradiction. Okay? If God had said, offer him there as a burnt offering, and do not offer him there as a burnt offering, that would be a contradiction. God's word to Abraham was not a contradiction. You know what it was? It was a paradox. Those are not the same thing. I will give you innumerable offspring through Isaac, Abraham, and I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering. How does that work? <laughs> well, I'd ask a similar question about all kinds of other places in the Bible. How does Deuteronomy 31.6, he will never leave you or forsake you, reconcile with Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or how does Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Reconcile with 2 Corinthians 4.11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. In so many situations, friend, you make an appointment, you come into my office, you say, Matthew, explain it. I don't know. I don't know. Abraham didn't initially know, but he knew what? He knew that God knew. He knew that God knew. And that, the fact that God knew, was enough for the man. He knew that whatever it took, right, whatever, whatever God had to do, whatever miracle God had to work out, God was sufficiently sovereign and loving and wise to handle a little paradox. And so he obeyed. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. How? Paradox? Because he considered three words, God was able. God was able. God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What's the point? Abraham's faith didn't depend on knowing the how. It didn't depend on knowing the what. It didn't depend on knowing the when. It entirely depended on knowing the who. May it be so for you. Because no matter how great the paradox Abraham believed that God would not, God could not, fail to keep his promise. Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Why not? Because my God is a faithful God. He doesn't feed his children with empty promises. And I linger here, friend, because there's a kind of trust in God that stores up treasures in heaven when it costs you a comfortable retirement. There's a kind of trust in God that tells your parents the truth when it costs you the approval of a close friend. There's a kind of trust in God that, that walks in absolute sexual purity even when your wife keeps turning you down, okay? It's not a leap in the dark. It's not passive resignation. It's informed trust that says this, the God who gave me this command understands what I do not understand. And he's promised to work all things together for good in my life. He doesn't say everything's good. He says he's going to work it all for good. And for that reason, I'm going to obey my God immediately and completely, even if obeying him is more painful than disobeying him. 
That's the kind of sacrificial obedience faith sustains. Abraham wasn't a masochist. He was a man of faith. And his faith worked out. It walked out. It it got legs and expressed itself through radical obedience under the craziest circumstances possible. And here's what I want us to see, friends. You cannot separate genuine faith from radical sacrificial obedience. It's not like you can say, well, I'd like roast beef but not the ham or no mayo. You you can't separate the two. Why not? Because genuine faith always produces and sustains the work of radical obedience. So much so that if you look at your life and you can't see any evidence of sacrificial obedience of God's commands, you should humbly question the authenticity of your faith. You can't separate these things. James 2.20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And that voice of faith in Abraham's life never spoke louder or in a more visible way than in verses 7 and 8. Look there. Look for the voice of faith. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But dad... Where's the lamb? We always bring a lamb. Where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. What what is that? That's the son trusting his father. The Father trusting the Lord, and both of them walking hand by hand, led by faith in the God who provides. That's what that is. What what does unbelief say? Think about this. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to work it out. I don't know how to provide for myself. Therefore, I will slip into despair. What does faith say? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to provide. But that's okay because I serve a God who is eternally and gloriously committed to providing for himself. And that's okay. I don't have to know how to work this out. I don't have to know what I'm supposed to do next. I know God. And he's a faithful provider. So, put not your trust in princes, Kingsway. And a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Right? Whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. What God requires, God provides. And so that sacrificial obedience is sustained by faith, point two. Here's the third point. God richly rewards the obedience of faith. So think about this. God demands sacrificial obedience. Faith comes in and sustains sacrificial obedience. And then God richly rewards that obedience of faith. That's the whole point. And if you look at verse 9, that the tension just keeps building to an unbearable point, okay? Why do I say that? Because as you get into verse 9 and then into verse 10, it starts to feel like, God, the time when you should have come in and done your whole like, God, intervene, hello, here's the angels with trumpets thing, should have been back there. You're, you're a little late, okay? You're cutting it a little close. Abraham built the altar, that took time. 
Agony continued. Abraham laid the wood in order. That took time. Agony continued. And bound Isaac, his son. That took time. I still don't see. You still make no sense. Verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand, pause, and took the knife to slaughter his son. And it was at that moment that God intervened. Not until then, that moment. Verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Genesis doesn't tell us if sobs of relief and joy just overcome that guy. It doesn't tell us if he just crumbled down to the ground weeping, okay? I'll let your imagination fill in the blanks, but Genesis does tell us what we need to know. Abraham passed the test. He passed the test. He proved he was a man who feared the Lord more than anything else. And that fear of the Lord wasn't like, ah, you're scary. No, it was reverent awe and trust. That's what it was. And at the high point of his trust, at the high point of his obedience, God provided. So the same eyes that that looked up and saw in verse 4, what? A mountain of looming sorrow. Looked up in verse 13 and saw what? The provision of God. Look there. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What's the point? God required an obedient sacrifice. God provided an obedient sacrifice. That's the point. And he rewarded Abraham. Big time. He didn't didn't give him a, a new promise, but he doubled down and expanded the same promises that he'd been making the guy for his entire life. So what did he do? He said, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you, right? I'm gonna give you so many offspring. They're not just like the stars in the heavens. That's pretty crazy. Check this out. As many as the sand on the seashore. And this is kind of new. By the way, your offspring are going to possess the gate of your enemies. Your offspring is going to enjoy a position of utter supremacy and rule over all the nations, pal. And lest you forget, through you and your offspring, all the peoples are going to get blessed. If you want to know why all that would come to pass, look at verse 16. Two reasons. First, because God is faithful. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. By myself I have sworn. What's that? That's the faithfulness of God guaranteeing the promises of God. Right? But there's a second reason. First, because God is faithful. Second, because Abraham chose to obey. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And then look again at the end of verse 18. God says it again, because you have obeyed my voice. Does that mean Abraham earned God's blessing? No, no, okay? His sacrificial obedience was the fruit of faith and it was sustained by faith. Does that mean that God blessed Abraham because he chose to obey? Yes, yes. Psalm 128.1 is right. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. God blessed Abraham because he was willing to obey God no matter the cost. And yet, friends, we know something. We know something about the fulfillment of those promises that Abraham did not. We know something, and that's this. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, we learn that King Solomon chose to build the temple of the Lord on Mount Moriah, which was in the city of Jerusalem. What's that tell us? Well, it tells us, friends, that 
this wasn't the last time a faithful father would lead his obedient son up a hill in the land of Moriah to be sacrificed. Nor was it the last time the son would carry the wood for the sacrifice on his back, only the next time the father didn't relent. The father didn't stop. He didn't provide a lamb. His son was the lamb. So the father took the knife, the knife of his wrath, and he killed his son, his only son, whom he loved. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is a deliberate connection to Genesis 22. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So so what's going on here? Follow with me, okay? Abraham had a desperate need that God was faithful to provide. What did he provide? A ram to die so Isaac wouldn't have to die. But you know what? Abraham had another need that was even greater than that. And that's a need that we share with Abraham. And that need is a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Abraham, no less than you and I, needed someone to die, someone to to bear the weight of God's wrath against all of our disobedience. We, We needed a substitute who was a man and therefore qualified to represent us, and we needed a substitute who was also God and therefore able to save us. And thank God, friends, that that son who walked up the hill again is named Jesus. Named Jesus. John the Baptist was right. John 1 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so just as Abraham demonstrated his love for God by not withholding his only son, so too friend, God demonstrates his love for you by not withholding his only begotten son. He does it because we need someone to die so we don't have to die. He does it because you are accountable to God. And because we've all sinned, that's bad news. And he does it because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus obeyed and Jesus died and Jesus rose from the grave so that you could be forgiven of your sin and made right with the God who made you to know him. That's what God was up to. That's what God was foreshadowing. It's in Jesus, the eternal son of God, that God brings the blessings he promised Abraham to pass. It's it's in Jesus, the eternal son of God, that God gives and saves a people as numerous as the stars of heaven or as the sand on the seashore. It's, It's Jesus who defeats and triumphs over the gate of our greatest enemies. What's that? Sin and death, right? And therefore, it's through trusting and obeying Jesus that we, like Abraham, we experience God's favor and God brings blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That's through Jesus. So because of Jesus, hear me, friends, we no longer say with longing on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. We say with grateful awe and amazement on the mountain of the Lord, it has been provided. And because it's been provided, it will always be provided. And when I'm wondering, will it be provided? I look back on the Ben. And when I see the Lord I'm waiting, I look back on the Ben. And when I'm struggling to trust the waiting, I look back on the Ben. Until it comes. Friends, what's so amazing about the gospel is that when Christ offered himself as the obedient sacrifice, we get all the reward. That's what's crazy. And it's his sacrificial obedience that frees us from our unbelief and sin to to walk in the same road today, confident that if we join him in that life of sacrificial obedience, sustained by faith in the Father when life makes no sense, this is what will happen in your life. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's a God who provides. So what's the point? God requires sacrificial obedience, faith sustains sacrificial obedience, and then 
beyond our wildest imagination. God rewards Christ and our sacrificial obedience way more than we ever dreamed possible. That's the point. So I'd summarize all of it this way, okay? If you want it in a sentence, remember this. Sacrificial obedience is sustained by faith in the God who provides. Sacrificial obedience, it's sustained by faith in the God who provides. I I don't know what kind of sacrificial obedience God is going to require from you this week. I don't know what kind of sacrificial obedience he required from you this past week. This I do know, friends. Your God is always worthy of your trust. He's always worthy of your love. And when you find yourself in a situation where what he's doing and saying makes absolutely no sense, cling to this. His wisdom is beyond your understanding. And cling to this. In Jesus, your father has proved that there is nothing in the heart of man or the heart of God that will stop him from being good to you. He's proved that. So may his self-sacrifice for you in Christ compel you this week to join Jesus in trusting the Father and walking in sacrificial obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we sing this song and we respond by sharing the Lord's Supper, that you would use these acts to strengthen our faith. Open our eyes to see, Lord, how the kind of sacrificial obedience you require is gladly and eternally sustained by faith in the God who provides. We bless you for being the God who provides. We trust you as the God who provides. And we now sing to you as the God who has provided for us in Christ. For your glory, I pray. Amen.